The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 10. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about weird weather, Antarctic anomalies, untimely ends, and haunted hotels. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the Moonlit Trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Elias Witherow, and will make the bad weather in your neck of the woods seem like a walk in the park, and assures you'll never look at the sky the same way again. Without further ado, I present to you The Clouds Are Hollow. It happened when I was five. I was running around a playground enjoying the summer like most little boys my age. I'd chase my friends around the swing set, then we'd all pile onto the slide, trying to make it to the bottom together. Our mothers watched from the benches, chatting with each other and keeping a watchful eye on our activity. I remember we were playing tag when I heard the dog barking. I stopped and wiped sweat from my forehead, gasping in air, hands on my grass-stained knees. Behind the playground was a patch of forest, an undeveloped plot of land. There was a dog biting at something just inside the tree line. 
I could hear the cries of pain from whatever the mutt was attacking. I had a soft spot for animals then, so I quickly bolted over and swatted the dog in the nose, scolding it and telling it to shoo. It was foolish of me, and I was lucky the dog didn't attack me. Instead, it whimpered and looked at me with sad brown eyes before running away. I turned my gaze to what the dog had been so interested in. My eyes went wide as they settled on the creature. It was small, maybe two feet tall, and covered with strange greenish skin. It had two arms and legs like a person, but its face was bloated, and its two white eyes rolled around to look at me. It reminded me of a frog. I threw a look over my shoulder and gave my mom a reassuring wave. She'd been calling me. She smiled and turned back to her conversation. I returned my attention to the strange creature as it was pulling itself off the ground to stand on two webbed feet. I asked it if it was okay, and to my amazement it nodded. I noticed it was clutching something in its hand. It looked like a cluster of red ribbons. Strangely, they floated up from its grip to disappear into the air. I examined them, watched the way they fluttered in the summer breeze, trying to understand how they seemingly faded into nothing. It was like the creature was holding a bunch of invisible balloons, and I could only see the strings. I pointed to the ribbons and asked what they were. In my mind, this creature is just another magical discovery on the path to adulthood. I had no idea that my situation wasn't normal. I didn't know that eerie frog creatures weren't part of the natural order of things. The tiny frogman looked towards me where I was pointing at his plume of ribbons and then back at me. I could see intelligence behind its strange puffy eyes. It opened its mouth and spoke. Its clouds are hollow. Its voice was raspy and strained, like it was speaking in my language for the first time. I didn't know what it meant, what meaning the words held, and so I cocked my head and asked. It shook its handful of ribbons at me, their shiny red texture drifting from its grasp and fading into the gentle air. The clouds are hollow, it repeated, clearly stressing every syllable. I giggled, unsure what else to do. It raised a three-fingered hand and pointed to the distant horizon in the direction the ribbons were blowing. Clouds are coming. I was about to ask it another question, but my mom was calling me. I turned back to the frog creature and told it I had to go, but that it could come play with me if it wanted. It just stared at me, its eyes rolling over my face. It seemed like it was surprised I could see it. I waved a hand at it as I went back to my friends. I told them about my discovery, but when I pointed toward the tree line to show them where my new pal was, the creature was gone. Later that night, as I crawled into bed, listening to my parents talk from their bedroom, I heard something outside my window. It sounded like something was tapping the glass. I took a quick peep toward my door and then scuttled toward the window. 
I peered out into the darkness, looking for the source of the sound. Our house was only a single story, so my view was filled with the backyard. The full moon glowed overhead, a golden badge on the dark fabric of night. And there was the strange frogman. His small two-foot frame was outlined by the moon's white rays, its hand clasping the strange red ribbons. They looked longer now, though, as they flapped in the silent air. Earlier they'd disappeared mere inches from its fist, but now they blustered in the wind three feet in length. I quietly opened my window and called out to the creature softly. It approached me without hesitation, as if it had expected me. I asked it what it was doing here. His voice slid from its green lips like wet silk. Stay by me. The hollow clouds are coming. I looked over my shoulder and saw the shadow of my parents' door close along the hallway wall. They were going to sleep. I pulled myself up onto the windowsill and over the side. My bare feet crunched down on the dead grass. The frogman pointed to his ribbons, which were visibly growing, climbing up into the sky like empty leashes. The thing motioned me to follow it, and I did, without question. I was just so strange and exciting, this bizarre friend I had made. It led me around the house and into the cul-de-sac of my neighborhood, where my house resided. I looked around at the other dark homes, hoping none of my neighbors saw me out here. I'd be in big trouble if they did. Something tugged at my hand, and I saw the frogman pointing toward the sky urgently. Look! The empty clouds! Sure enough, overhead, massive black clouds rolled across the empty sky. They were tall, like thunderheads. But that's where the similarities stopped. The clouds had cracks and holes in them, like hard-boiled eggs and a strange red light emitted from the insides. My eyes widened in the night as I gazed up into their interior. White, bony ribs filled the dark clouds, lining the walls like gutless carcasses. Black ooze hung from the ebony formations of fractured cotton, and it reminded me of weeping willows. The silent masses chugged across the sky far above, looming over the neighborhood and blacking out the moon. Red light pulsed from the holes in the enclosed clouds, illuminating quick glances at the ribs inside. Drifting out of the bottom of the clouds were the red ribbons. I traced them down the sky hundreds of feet and saw that the strange creature was holding the other ends in his grip. Take my hand, the frogman urged. I quickly gasped at its three-fingered hand, surprised at how warm it was. No sooner had I done so, than the clouds began to open up like gaping jaws. I saw the ribbons go taut in the creature's fist, and he adjusted his grip, his eyes trained in concentration, at the evolving display. As the clouds opened, the ribs parted like teeth, and I felt the air swirl around me. My hair whipped up into my face, and I pushed it aside, my eyes wide and my heart racing in my chest. The clouds looked like dark, hungry mouths. Suddenly, 
floating out from the rooftops of my neighborhood houses were the glowing forms of people. I gasped as I recognized them, encased in a soft red glow, eyes closed, and gently drifting up to the new waiting maw. I cried out, turning around, and saw the forms of my parents drift out of my house and up into the sky. They looked like they were asleep and completely unaware of what was happening. I tried to run to them, panic suddenly erupting in my chest, but the frogman held me tight. I begged him to let me go, but he shook his bloated head violently. Not you, not you, he kept saying, struggling to maintain its grip on both me and its strange nightmare balloons. I watched in horror as the people continued to rise up into the sky, higher and higher, until finally they entered the waiting jaws. One by one, the clouds closed, once again forming dark, broken spheres in the night. Every single person who had been pulled up from their home was now trapped, unaware, inside the rolling black thunderheads. Tears rolled down my face as fear churned my insides. In confused horror, I watched as the red ribbons slowly began to disappear again. They faded from the clouds into invisibility the closer they got to the frogman's fist. After what seemed like forever, the creature let me go, his other hand clutching only inches of ribbon now. Crying, I asked him what he had done to my friends and family. I demanded it, taking a step closer toward it in defiance. The thing raised a hand at me, trying to settle my hysterics. It's okay. I took only... It seemed to struggle to find the right words. I took their after-dead. I cried harder, begging him to release all the people. It shook its small head at me, its mouth a thin green line. The hollow clouds need your people's after-dead. If not, its eyes filled with quiet fear. If not, I lose control, and they will never go away. The ribbons will be broken. Uncontrolled, the jaws will never stop eating. I didn't understand any of this at the time. Didn't know what it was talking about. I just knew I wanted to get away from the frogman and the strange, horrible nightmare balloons it held. Look! The frogman pointed to the sky. They're leaving. I turned my head up and saw the towering black clouds begin to fade. Their great ribbed walls slowly started to drift higher and higher up into the air. And carried into the night toward the horizon. I looked back at the small creature next to me and saw it was still clutching the now tiny red ribbons. I wondered what would happen if he ever let them go. Goodbye, little one, the thing suddenly said. It took one last look at me and then began walking across the street toward the woods. I didn't watch as it disappeared into the night, but instead turned and sprinted back to my house, convinced I'd find my parents gone. As I crashed back through my window and torn down the hallway, I prayed that I wasn't alone. I prayed harder than I ever had, 
I banged open my parents' bedroom door and to my utter relief. I saw them both jump up in their bed, the noise jolting them from slumber. I climbed up with them, weeping, babbling about what I had seen, about what I had just been through. They shushed me with loving compassion and told me I had just had a bad dream. They told me they were here for me. It's been 20 years since that night. I haven't forgotten a single detail of the horrors I witnessed, but some of the terror has gained clarity since then. I have no rational explanation for what happened. I don't have any resolution to the fear that's held me for decades. But as the years have advanced, I've begun to wonder. I've begun to wonder what will happen to my parents when they die. I wonder where their souls will go. And even more terrifying, if the hollow clouds return, will the little frogman remember my kindness and save me a second time? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Clouds Are Hollow by author Elias Witherow. Up next, we've got another second tale of terror, courtesy of author Sam Marduk. In it, we'll travel to the coldest place on Earth, where mysteries still abound after all these years. And, as we'll soon discover, some things are better left unknown. Without further ado, I present to you, I regret ever working in the South Pole. I work in the South Pole. I'm aware that sounds exciting, and it truly is. But it's a difficult job with taxing hours. We were sent to the middle of Antarctica, with a thousand miles of snow and ice on all sides. We worked a solid seven to five with the lack of recreation. We typically do 18-hour days. However, we do have slow satellite Wi-Fi, which is what keeps me sane during the long days. Regardless, all this wasn't the problem. The problem was the sheer atmosphere of oppression. The whole place didn't feel right. Most of the facility is subterranean, with covered heaters atop the roof and an entrance into a cement stairwell. The bunker is what you'd expect, gray concrete square with men and women's bunking areas and a few couples' rooms. 
a large bathroom facility with shower and toilet stalls, plus three labs and a fully stocked cafeteria, all with no windows. There was also a medical bay and two rooms with couches for therapy. After the double section entrance was the rec room. It had a pool table and bar. The wall was knotty pine wood paneling, like from the 1970s. The rooms were all attached by a long, dingy hallway, including two offices with desks and chairs. Spent most of my time there, actually. Atop the station was an observation deck, reachable with a ladder, with windows where we could see and hear the outdoors. But we usually only went up to smoke, since it was nearly as cold as the outside. The whole place was poorly lit. Fluorescent lights and a few lamps in corners, but overall it looked like a dingy green underground cement hell. Outside is exactly what you would expect from Antarctica. Snow for hundreds of miles in all directions. If you have a fear of open water, it feels like that, except you have to walk in it. I was a little surprised as to why they invited so many on this particular expedition. There were twelve of us in total. Usually six would suffice. All professionals in our fields. However, the range of work each of us did was surprising. Typically, it would be a singular field of study to accomplish a common goal. But on this expedition, there were several different professions. The first was an older Finnish gentleman, a medical doctor, who was skilled in healing injuries in frozen climates. The next was a physicist who really was as surprised as us to be in the South Pole, for their work is often theoretical, and when in practice, requires a team in and of itself. The next two were a British husband and wife team, both geologists. There were three men in their 30s for maintenance and driving, uh, specialized in sub-zero conditions, and masters in any repair field. Also, there was a biologist, a young black lady, who wore her hair in a bun and kept her lab coat on at all times inside. She was all work and no fun. Then there were even two therapists. Yeah, two therapists. The first is what you'd expect, a middle-aged lady with blonde bangs and a clipboard, always wearing a warm smile. The other, well, he was a tall, lanky fellow. He was gone, and his hair was jet black. Honestly, I had no idea why he would be a therapist. I myself was intimidated to even say hello to him. I never saw anyone join him in therapy unless he specifically asked them. I usually tried to avoid him. There was another man, who I assumed was a cook, until I saw he had to make his own meals. He was an odd, mousy-looking fellow. He didn't speak to anyone, and when I tried, he would simply ignore me. I maintained that he would be my favorite person on this expedition, since he kept 100% to himself. Me? I was the chaplain. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. There are a half-dozen professionals here, they need a chaplain? Well, I didn't think it made sense, but when I was contacted by the organization funding the trip, I didn't argue. They were offering a lot of money, and in my line of work, that's a rarity. 
The expedition was to be six months, and we were to each conduct specific experiments. I don't know what the others were assigned, but I was to journal on the religious implications of the expedition and provide any counsel for all of the other participants on the trip of any sect or faith. The council assignment I didn't have a problem with, but the journaling? That's the kind of thing college freshmen journal on in Theology 101. Either way, I was getting paid, so I sucked it up and spent the rest of my free time downloading movies and games to pass the long hours in between counseling. Surprisingly, a lot of people came to me for religious discussion. I went over the maintenance guy's approval when I cracked open a beer with him and talked Catholicism on the old red rec room couch. I'm a Protestant minister, so they were a little standoffish at first. We became fast friends, and even though I couldn't bless them or give confession, I think it helped ease stress to feel like they could disclose matters of faith as well as just have fun conversation. Either way, I got along well with everyone after enough time. The physicist was a staunch atheist, so we played pranks on each other frequently. I'd hide his laptop out of easy reach, blaring, Jesus, take the wheel, and he'd wake me up half the days with no church in the wild. I considered him my second best friend in the compound, even though that song did give me chills when I thought about how far away we were from civilization. My best friend was the odd man. He was always around the rec room when I was, and he never spoke. He wore an orange hoodie and jeans indoors, and always seemed like he was drinking alone at the dimly lit makeshift bar. I thought nothing of it, since our schedules were all different, and I could absolutely condone drinking yourself senseless in a place like this. It was lonely most days. We did our own thing at our own stations, often eating lunch there. Frozen meals are MREs, usually. I did spend quite some time talking with a doctor. He was a Buddhist, so we spent many mornings meditating in his medical station under the buzzing fluorescent lights. He said that the place gave him an odd feeling. It was hard to be centered here in this cement brick, buried in the snow. It did get to me after a while. When I was alone and the lights were quiet, I swear I could hear whispering. After one particular incident where I swore I heard clear words, I started wearing headphones. They helped quite a bit with filling my ears with noise and blocking out the outside world. Once a week, supplies were dropped in from the coastal base hundreds of miles away. We restocked the cigarettes, whiskey, and other non-essentials like food and water. I say that to point out whoever was paying for this was dropping serious money. I never met the main client. Rather, I was contracted through their representatives. Apparently, the man funding it was very wealthy, very driven, and very religious, and he was highly invested in this expedition. He wanted a success, but no one knew his goal with this ordeal he was funding. Also, once a week, we would go out in the Snow Rover, a giant SUV that could ride over the snow and ice. We would take samples of the ice and examine a previous dig site from the last crew. 
I could not imagine the crew that had come all the way out here to build the facility, but I bet they got paid crazy money. Some days we would all just go out and see the sun. We couldn't leave during a blizzard, but most days only the necessary crew for the excavation would go. Whenever we went, we had to wear a harness attached by rope to the SUV to avoid slipping down the ice and being injured. We can only go once a week due to the outside conditions and distance to the dig site. I mentioned both of these to say that we were alone out here, and if a plane came Monday, then we had seven days until it returned. Then was the first big shift. It was exactly two months in the base. The team who left that day were the geologists, the biologist with one maintenance man to drive and man the harnesses. They left in good spirits and remained at the site for hours. However, they returned shaken. They burst in the door while I was in the rec room with a the therapist, and we immediately noticed the fear in their eyes. The lady geologist ran to the couple's room without saying a word. The husband chased after, calling her name. We asked what happened and noticed the biologist was crying. The other therapist entered the room like a ghost, and without a word, he ushered her into his office and closed the door. The doctor burst in and boomed. What on earth is going on? I don't know, said the first therapist. She was anxious, as was I. Where's Jack? The maintenance worker who drove the SUV. Wait, where's the car? I inquired, opening the door to the outside. I saw nothing but our flag, a long set of footprints, and miles of gleaming in the sunlight. We sat for what felt like hours in the rec room, all of us who didn't go on the field expedition, that is. The others were in the tall therapist's office. Panicked voices could be heard behind the door. Finally, they all exited. The geologists went to the room without saying a word. The biologist sat in one of the empty folding chairs, and the therapist stood behind her, hands on the back of her seat. She'd clearly been crying since she returned. We got there ahead of schedule, she started gathering her composure. The dig site, we arrived at 0700 instead of 8, so we got to work early. At first, all was fine. Jack was in the SUV, minding the harnesses. I was chiseling away at a small patch of ice when I heard the others call from below. We looked at her, hanging on her every shaking word. She continued. I slid down to the base of the hole, about 30 meters down, I think. They had struck a hard surface. We all dug together and pulled out a massive lockbox. Immediately, we assumed it was left from the last dig, but the design was old. It looked like something from World War II. It was heavy and sealed shut. We tugged the rope to signal Jack, but there was no response. We started calling out for him, but he never called back. We couldn't see him from our vantage point. After a solid ten minutes of screaming, we made our way up the hill using our tools. We used an extra length of cord to pull up the box. It took all three of us, but we got it up. When we reached the top, Jack was nowhere to be found. We searched the perimeter for well over an hour, but the 
maximum visibility, we would have seen him. We checked for holes in the ice and signs of footprints, but his earlier tracks never let the sight of the SUV. We loaded the box in the back and kept searching. We noticed something then. Something we obviously should have seen already. When we climbed atop the vehicle for a better vantage point, we saw a massive single message in the snow. Run! We looked at her in disbelief. A mutual feeling of sympathy and that I could have searched better, people tend to have. She started tearing up again. We panicked. We, we drove away. But none of us can operate a vehicle designed for snow and ice. We crashed into a massive pothole about a mile south of here. We left the car and walked back. This find is still there, and Jack is somewhere in that deserted wasteland. After this, she broke down in sobs and left to the dorm. Jack hadn't answered a single radio call or even made an attempt at reaching us. The big site was an hour's drive from our base, and we were thousands of miles from any other researchers. We were essentially powerless to do anything. First things first, said one of the other repairmen. We need to get our ride back. We suited up, then he and the other maintenance worker left on a snowmobile designed for a short distance. Now, I don't know how they did it, but they managed to bring the SUV back safely in less than an hour. By now, it was getting dark, and the search for Jack would be too dangerous to continue tonight. We didn't sleep well that night. The odd man didn't even come to bed. He just wandered the halls, drinking. I lay there, listening to music to drown out the sounds of silent sobs coming from down the hall. This concrete slab, this tomb in the middle of a frozen dead zone. We were completely and utterly alone. The doctor remarked before bed, if Jack is still alive, he may be better off out there. The next morning we set out, all of us, except the two therapists and the odd man, who I assume was sleeping off a hangover. We dragged the lockbox out of the vehicle and laid it in the rec room. We loaded up and decided to deal with opening it later. We searched the dig site and surrounding area until evening and turned up nothing. A message in the snow was nowhere to be found, and there had been no snowfall that night. We found no tracks, no signs, no body, no anything. We returned, depressed and feeling responsible for our missing companion. When we returned, however, we were greeted by an odd sight, a jet. On the snow was a ski-fitted jet, not like the crappy junk plane that dropped us off. This was an expensive private jet. We entered the facility to the sounds of loud, booming laughter. A short, bald man with a white goatee sat in the rec room with the shrinks. He was smoking a cigar and wore a very nice suit. Two very large men in sunglasses stood on either side of the door. We were slightly stunned. Well, the man said in a hard southern drawl, turning to us, if that ain't the rest of the party. Who? I was cut short. Allow me to introduce myself. 
He stood, extended his ringed hand. Earl, redacted, pleased to meet y'all finally. We took turns awkwardly introducing ourselves, realizing this must be the guy in charge. He invited us into the cafeteria to have an official meeting. This was the second weird shift in the trip. He offered condolences in regards to Jack and expressed that it was no one's fault he went missing. As for that message in the snow, he said, lowering his voice, I would say this whole place tells you to run at some point. Don't let it get to you. He finally revealed his focus of the expedition, that we were to discover any signs of past visits man adventured. He also expressed that he wanted to colonize the South Pole, but needed to know the psychological effects of people living here. That's why he sent two mental health associates and a minister. He pointed at me, saying this, making me feel exposed and awkward. He again thanked us and sent us to bed after the best steak dinner I have ever had prepared. This guy was serious. He flew in his personal chef to thank us for our work. The next morning, after a bacon and egg breakfast, he took us into the tall therapist's office, one at a time to shoot the shit, as he so delicately put it. When it was my turn, he was very respectful, a gesture I appreciate when no one knows I'm a minister, but it feels forced at times when there's pretense. How are you, Reverend? He asked softly. Well, I replied, not sure how to answer that question in light of the past few days. Glad to hear it. He smiled at the ground. Son, I'm going to level with you. You are the most important person here. How's that? I inquired, wondering if he's flattering me or not. Well, he started, looking for the red words. This uh, trip is more for psychological research than anything. What? He cut me off. We wanted a religious figure and at least two therapists to log the mental strain on living out here. We wanted to build a new civilization, but we have been testing different groups in small segments of time. Why me? It was the foremost of many pressing questions. Well, he said, smiling, I'm a Methodist boy myself, but I picked you because of an article you wrote a while back. You said in the final line that you have the same philosophy as me. What's that? I inquired as I'd written a few articles in my time and wasn't sure which one he meant. To truly understand God, we must also understand his counterpart. I immediately knew the article to which he referred. It was an article I wrote after seminary on demonology in modern society. I shuddered as this was an unpleasant field of research. Either way, the man had done his work on me, but I still wasn't sure what a short article on demons qualified me for a mission in the Antarctic. I left the room with Earl, and we proceeded to rejoin the others. We predominantly listened to him rant on rather than talk amongst ourselves. We just didn't feel right. 
We were here in the warmth while this man was bellowing on, and our friend was out there cold and alone. I overheard many times the biologist and geologist ask to leave. At first, their requests were simply brushed off, but by the last requests, he sternly reminded them that they were under contract. They resolved themselves to the rooms after that. Earl left that night with the instructions to report our findings, if there were any. He then boarded his plane with his bodyguards and left promptly. Before bed, I swear I heard whispering from the observation deck, but when I went to see, there was nothing. The next day, a massive blizzard rolled in. We resolved that Jack had died in the snow outside. No person could survive a sub-zero blizzard after three days. This is, officially, where things went bad. We decided to open the lockbox. It was sealed by metal welding all the way around. It took a little while, but the other two maintenance men used blowtorches on the chest until it finally came free. They strained to pull the lid off of its container. We'd gathered around close. I found myself the closest to the box. They flipped the heavy lid over, which shook black soot loose from the chest. We coughed, and when it cleared, we saw the contents. There was nothing, or at least nothing important. We found a piece of string, a thimble, and salt scattered about. We sat there, rubbing our heads and looking at each other. We discussed why this would be out there in the ice so many layers deep. We talked a little while until I noticed the physicist leaving. He was pale as a ghost, so I chased him to ask what the matter was. Hey! I shouted as I caught up to him in the dorm. You good? He stood there, shaking his head. After a long pause, he responded, No. What is it? I was curious as to why he was acting so strange out of nowhere. Meanwhile, I saw the other participants walk down the hall to the cafeteria. Only I noticed that the man in the orange hoodie was nowhere to be seen. My thoughts were shaken when the physicist spoke up. Did you see the word on the lid? He asked quietly. No, I was confused. I must have missed it. Can you read Hebrew? He asked, choking back tears, it sounded. No, I replied. I studied Greek. Wait, can, can you? Yeah, I'm sure, sure was. I can read well enough, Hebrew at least. His voice shook. I wish I couldn't. What did it say? The book. He said as a tear rolled down his face. I'd never seen him like this before, and frankly, I was a little scared. You can't buy into that. No! He shouted, cutting me off. You know, as well as I do, that this place is wrong. It does things to you. God, the first week I chased footsteps around the shower every morning, only to realize I was alone every single time. Listen. I placed my hand on his shoulder. We're going to be okay. I wish I could say I was telling the truth, but that box did have some sort of weird feeling around it. That night, around 2 a.m., I awoke to the sound of footsteps. 
They were so loud, I heard them over my headphones. I went to check around, and no one was awake beside me. I heard soft sobbing from the couple's room, but knew better than to disturb them. They had it pretty rough right now. As I returned to my bunk, I walked by the cafeteria and caught something awful. I turned to see the most horrendous sight I've ever seen. All the chairs and tables were scattered and flipped. Food was smeared all along the walls and ceilings, and utensils and appliances were scattered about. In the center of the floor was a massive, rusted steel cross, and nailed to it was Jack. He was soaked from head to toe in blood, and his eyes looked as if every vein had burst. Barbed wire covered his arms and legs, and nails were driven through his wrists and ankles. He was bald and thin, and when we made eye contact, he shook violently. Then he shrieked through spattering blood. Belfagor! Now was my turn to lose control. I fell backward and slid on the tile. I must have been screaming my lungs out, for everyone poured into the hallway, asking in confusion what was happening. I had urinated. I pointed to the cafeteria through tears and panicked breaths. The inside was totally normal. Nothing was out of place. No cross, no jack, no destruction. The last thing I remember was showering and opening a bottle of jack. It was only three hours later I awoke in the rec room covered by a blanket. Jane, the therapist, was asleep on the opposite couch. She was sweet through all this, and I'm sure she was disappointed in my lack of professionalism. I was still drunk when I stood. Everyone was still asleep, and the blizzard still blasted our compound. I wandered the hall and heard the sobbing from the couple's room again. I realized in my stupor that they may need help. I knocked softly on the door, but the crying continued uninterrupted. Before I could knock again, I had to resolve myself to the toilet. I ran and vomited into the bowl, now feeling slightly more alert. As I stood wiping my mouth, I caught the brief glimpses of a figure leaving the bathroom. It was dark and tall, but I couldn't catch any more details. I finally had enough and returned to my bunk. I fell into a restless sleep that night, but I slept nonetheless. I woke the next day to someone shaking my arm. Wake up! My vision focused to see one of the maintenance men. Power is out and people are missing. I stood groggily, turned to the hallway where I could hear voices in the cafeteria. I saw the only other person in the room was the physicist. He was facing away towards the wall. Come on. I slurred. He didn't stir, he just laid there. I only left because I saw him breathing. I walked into the cafeteria. It was lit by emergency candles on the tables where I saw the biologist, Jane, the doctor, and the two maintenance men. Counting me, this was less than half our original group. They turned and the other maintenance said, Well, look who it is. You gonna scare the hell out of us again? I didn't smile or disagree. I just sat beside the doctor and asked where the geologists were. They won't answer their door, Jane said, her age truly beginning to show in her tired, drawn eyes. The other therapist as well is missing. 
We're going to leave, chimed the biologist. As soon as the blizzard dies down. Fuck their contracts. How? We're a thousand miles from the nearest base. I felt negative for saying, but I didn't want to risk certain death for a little cabin fever. Well, chimed the man who woke me. We had a massive sled we'll load with every tank of gas. And then we just have to get within 50 miles to the nearest base to be within radio contact. We have GPS. We'll drive in shifts, and we'll take our time to avoid pitfalls. Is this agreeable? Asked the doctor. Everyone nodded in agreement. In that case, he continued, I suggest we spend the next few days together hoping the missing members return, and if not, then we will beg their forgiveness in hell. I spent the next day sitting in the days. I just had no clue why we were all so distraught. We all layered up in the dark and hunkered down. We made small talk in an attempt to fill the void. The dancing candlelight played tricks on our eyes, and the dark was oppressive. The six of us sat there, just sitting, just waiting. Finally, around 1800, 6 p.m., Jane suggested we check on the geologist. We stayed close down the hallway and heard the sobbing. It was softer, but still present. Jane knocked, waited, knocked again. Then she shouted she was coming in, but the door was locked. The maintenance man began pounding his fist and threatened to break in. He took out a key ring and picked out a key. It fit the door and he slowly opened it to the bedroom. Inside was a nightmare. The first thing I noticed was the blood. It was everywhere. The walls, the bed, the ceiling, the floors. It covered the lamp and bathed the room in a deep red. On the bed was the male geologist. His eyes were wide open in chalk and his mouth hung agape. His throat was torn out and his leg was chewed to the bone. His wife sat beside him with her back to us. She turned, covered in blood herself. She was crying and chewing. She sputtered the bloody meat while sobbing. Her expression turned from sorrow to one of pure, unadulterated rage. She contorted her mouth to scream, but only a hoarse gargle and bits of flesh came out. The maintenance worker closed the door and we all panicked in unison. Get the door, the doctor shouted. We followed him to the kitchen and pulled tables in front of the door. We piled enough furniture to board that animal in her cage. We returned to the rec room. Everyone was crying and Jane was in the fetal position, shaking uncontrollably. We leave tomorrow, huffed the doctor in between shutters. The blizzard still raged outside, I swear. At times the wind was so loud I felt like it mocked me. I must have fallen asleep at some point because a massive blast woke me. I looked up to see others jumping to their feet. We got ourselves to the ladder and climbed to the observation deck. Outside we saw blackness expanding, all except for a large patch of light a few meters away. Through the whiteout conditions we could make out fire. The SUV was in flames. Gas tanks stacked around it. Atop the flames was a person. Upon closer inspection, 
I could see it was naked and dancing. Oh, God. The biologist lifted her hand to her mouth. Jane? Who was Jane? She was naked and being burned by the flames. Her howls echoed through the dark storm. We watched as the fire consumed her body. She shrieked and screeched until she finally fell, remaining silent forever. We walked downstairs, feeling hopeless. We sat in the dark of the rec room, and no one spoke until morning. The physicist was still in bed. He was trying to ignore everything, but at this point I knew he was far too gone. The footsteps were loud in the unoccupied rooms, but at this point I'd given up. If I was to die here, then so be it. We huddled in blankets and coats against the wall. We sat and we cried. The candle in front of our feet was the only light source. I closed my eyes tight so not to see the dark shadow pacing the room in front of us. The next morning the power returned. The lights were flickering and we stood slowly in the dim, intermittent glow. I heard music playing in the shadows. We all walked together and looked inside. Within was the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, being played on loop from an MP3 player. We walked into the dull gray room and saw the physicist naked, sitting on the floor in front of the iPod. Blood appeared to be running into the drain beneath him. He slowly turned his head to me. He held up his left hand to his lips and hissed a long, shh. With the other hand, he lifted his bloody, mutilated genitals. He closed his eyes and smiled a large, toothy smile. He whispered behind closed teeth, I like this song now. God, said the doctor. He slowly approached the bloodied man, attempting to keep him calm. He continued, It's okay, boy. I'm here to help. The physicist snickered again, eyes still closed, and teeth still bared in a snarling grin. As the doctor got close, the man shrieked with inhuman volume and sprang forward. He tackled the doctor to the ground and sunk teeth deep into the old man's jugular. Blood ran down both the doctor's neck and the physicist's teeth. He stood, turning his violent intent on us. The doctor sputtered blood and choked for air. As the brooding man crouched to a leap, a loud bang filled our ears. I fell to the ground in agony, screeching in my eardrums. It was unbearable. Finally, it cleared, and I saw the physicist, now lying dead in a pool of his own blood. In his head was a circular wound that bore all the way through his skull. One of the maintenance workers was holding a smoking pistol. We were now four. Me, the biologist, the other two maintenance workers. The rest were all now missing or dead. Although the power was on, the satellite was down, thus ruining our chances for radio and Wi-Fi. We all paced and cried and panicked for hours, until finally one of the maintenance men spoke up. Our only chance at survival is to fix that dish. We looked at him and silently knew he spoke the truth. The outside was still completely whited out from the amount of snow and wind. I'll go, spoke up the other man. 
We'll go together, said the first. The biologist and I knew we couldn't argue. We watched them in their coats leave into the unforgiving blizzard. We waited for what seemed like hours, searching for radio signals and Wi-Fi. Finally, it came back. We smiled for the first time in a while and prepared for the men's return. We sat and waited, and waited, and waited. We didn't say anything, but we knew. We knew we were the last. She fell asleep in my lap after we cried ourselves, tired. Before I closed my eyes, I swear I heard the giggles of a child. I awoke sometime later. I was utterly alone. I yelled for the biologist. I searched each and every room until I found the last thing I wanted to find. I found her in the observatory. She wrote a lovely note about wanting to see the outside world before she died. In her arm was an empty syringe that I guessed is what she used to end her life. Her eyes were blank, staring into oblivion. I left her to a piece. Now, the reason I write this is my probable last moments of clarity. The reason we were brought to this frozen hell only to die. The reason I'm sending out this story before I put an emergency flare gun in my mouth. I returned to the office I'd been using. It was hysterical. I saw my reflection in the display mirror and noticed my eyes were totally black. This sight brought me to smash the mirror. I sliced my knuckles, which rocked me back to reality, and in my second of clarity, I noticed the slip of paper that fell from the shattered pieces. It was a note with a picture attached. The note read, If you're reading this, then I hope it isn't too late. This place is not what you think. The man in charge is not a religious kook. He's much more dangerous. By now, you may have found that undiscovered lockbox. In it you found some trinkets to spook you. There's probably a minister with you to comment on the materials as evil. This is their set and setting. That black dust that flew out? It wasn't dust and it wasn't evil. God, these people don't want to colonize. Ever wonder why you're so far away from any other bases? This is a weapons testing facility. You've been unknowingly testing compounds for a private company. This particular compound is an untraceable, psychosis-inducing strain of pathogen that's meant for world leaders. The concept is to have the enemy kill itself. If you've breathed the black dust, then it's too late. All you can do is attempt to get this message out. But do not trust the maintenance men, and do not trust the tall therapist. They're working for Earl. They'll disappear without a trace shortly after his visit. They've logged your behaviors, so even if the blizzard, which is what I assume you're already in, subsides, you'll be found and killed if you escape. I'm so sorry. I lost my entire team. I wish you never would have come. I'm sorry. Dave. The picture attached was what I assume was the previous team. In red ink, a man was circled 
labeled me. In the picture was a mousy man in an orange hoodie and jeans. Now, I hope you enjoyed I Regret Ever Working in the South Pole by author Sam Marduk. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simply scarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep too, if you can. <laughs>
and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.